1: Part up for cash. They stayed up all night selling cocaine and hash. To an undercover cop who had a sister named Jan, for reasons unexplained, she loved the monkey man. Tweeter was a boy scout for she went to Vietnam and found out the hard way. Nobody gives a damn. They knew that they found freedom just across the Jersey line, so they hopped into a stolen car, took highway 99, and the walls came down all the way to hell, never saw them when they standing, never saw them when they fell. This is Pod Dillon, the show that celebrates the work of Lucky Wilbury, one song at a time. Proud member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. I'm your host, The Freewheel and Rob Kelly. And joining me this week to talk about the awesomely cool song, Tweeter and the Monkey Man, from Traveling Wilbury's Volume 1 are my pals, the masterminds behind the 90s comics blog, The Unspoken Decade, Dean Compton and Emily Scott. Hi, guys. Hello.
2: Hey, man, how's it going, Free Wheeler?
1: <laughs> it's very exciting to have you guys on the show, finally. I will pull back the curtain a little bit. Just uh, a day ago from when we recorded this, we did the uh, Pod Dylan live show, and Dean and Emily were nice enough to show up, and so it was a really wonderful experience talking Dylan and looking out into the crowd for once and, and seeing your guys' faces. This was awesome. So I'm really happy to finally have you on the show.
2: Well, thanks for having us, and uh, the check you gave us for showing up was real nice, too. I'll tell you what. <laughs>
1: Uh, it's all that fire and water podcast money, of course, that we have uh, floating around. So, uh, as I mentioned, we're here to talk about Tweeter and the Monkey Man, which is again, an invariably cool song from the Traveling Woolberries. Before we get to that, I have to ask both you guys since this is both of your first appearance on Pod Dylan, of course, Emily was on Treasury Cast and on Film and Water a little while ago talking about Annie. Uh, where, how did you guys become uh, conversant or fans of, of Bob Dylan's work?
3: me i mean i grew up in like the i was a teenager in the 90s and so there wasn't really a lot of like active like new bob dylan like i wasn't seeing bob dylan on like mtv all the time or anything but i wanted to be well like i was raised in the household where like i was fairly sheltered from a lot of popular culture so i didn't grow up knowing a lot of like classic rock and roll or whatever i had to educate myself on those things so i would just use like Spin or Rolling Stone, like, 500 greatest albums of all time. Like, those kind of lists are, like, 100 greatest albums of the 60s or whatever. And I would just use those things to try and, like, you know, give myself a rock and roll education. And one, you know, one thing you see constantly on the top of those lists is Bob Dylan. Like, seven different Bob Dylan albums. So Hmm. I would have to go out and, you know, spend what now, in retrospect, seems like a lot of money for, like, one album at a time. To try and uh, build up my Bob Dylan encyclopedia.
2: Well, you know, for me, um, it probably starts with uh, really liking Tom Petty and really liking the Traveling Wilburys. That's probably my first uh, exposure to a lot of Bob Dylan. Was actually this Traveling Wilburys album, and then I got. I, I'm a really big Beatles fan, and, we, and and when the Beatles anthology came out, it, you know, it was a very in depth look at the history of the Beatles. You know, chronology. Uh, Chronologically, and so you can't really talk about the Beatles without talking about the album Beatles for Sale, which is you know referred to as like the Dylan album. This had Babies in Black on it, and uh, No Reply, and I'm a Loser, and it's very Dylan influence. And when you go through the history, you you know you get to that part. Uh, Dylan, Dylan taught the Beatles how to smoke marijuana and everything. (laughs) So I, being into being into the Beatles, I'm always a person who, when I find out like artists that I like. Are inspired by somebody. I Always want to go check that person out. I always want to go check that. Whether it's music, movies, comic books, what have you, uh, animation. I always want to go check out what inspired the people who I like. So being a huge Beatles fan, of course, I went uh, and and like Emily too. I wanted to be you know educated on on rock and roll history, and I wanted to be able to be conversant, like you know, like I was going to be you know some dumbass extra on High Fidelity or something. I was like, oh, <laughs> I you better know something so uh so i bought uh i bought bob dylan's greatest hits volume
3: one uh and
2: uh and you know just kind of grew to have greater appreciation from there I, i've grown into being a big alt country americana fan and bob dylan's a huge influence on bands i like like wilco and uncle tupelo and uh and so you just never stop seeing his influence anywhere anywhere and everywhere so you know that's Kind of my Bob Dylan story, kind of a meandering sojourn. He'd appreciate that.
1: Yeah, and well, I mean, I yeah, I mean, that's how I got into Bob was through the traveling Mulberries. Actually, that was the first thing I ever heard, and uh, it was though it was the Dylan songs that I liked the most. Now, Dean, I know you've seen Bob live. Emily, have you? No,
3: I tried a couple different times in the early two thousands and was thwarted getting to. I feel like this is the start of like concert tickets selling out online very quickly. Hmm and being scooped up by scalpers. And I tried to get tickets to see him at Radio City Music Hall, I think it was. And like, maybe Madison, I don't know. it One of the bigger, you know, concert venues in New York. And just never quite faded. Every time I would try, uh, it was always like tickets were like instantly sold out.
1: <laughs> yeah. It's a, and it does happen like that. Unfortunately. Uh, Dean, what did you think of the show when you so when did you see him? I forget what you told me, but I forget. Well, I, I
2: I saw him at Memphis in May, 2001, and I, I'm going to have to be honest with you. I was uh, I was under the influence heavily and don't remember a ton about the show. I remember having a good time, <laughs> and I remember uh, I remember thinking that, you know, this was a great event and thinking it was surreal, but I also argued with the Mississippi River for like 10 minutes that day. You know, and I, I won this argument. Let me let everybody, you know, in on that secret. I won, so – I'm not the best judge to be like, oh, he was great live or he was like this. But I remember it was a very magic feeling just to kind of be, you know, in the same area as, as Bob Dylan. And I'd seen Willie Nelson earlier that day, too. So it was like, you know, like this is just a really big day. And I wish I remembered more of it. I don't, I don't regret having the good time I had. But I wish for your listeners I could be like, oh, Bob said this really cool thing about Memphis or about Elvis. But I don't remember.
3: <laughs> That's, well, you know, a story of like ah,
1: I couldn't get tickets, so at least you got yeah. that. <laughs> That's uh, well, you know, Again, at least you know you had a good time. So, um, I mean, <laughs> of, of all of all the uh, of all the Woolbury songs on this record, this one is certainly the most Dylan esque, and it is certainly the most unique. It is the longest of the Woolbury songs. It's the longest Woolbury song, period. Actually, and it's certainly the most serious. I mean, you've got these nine other songs that are kind of. Jokey And uh, maybe even a little silly, but certainly lighthearted. Even congratulations earlier on on the record is, is about heartbreak. But it's this one is sort of very serious until you, of course, you start digging into the lyrics and you realize that this thing is just filled with landmines of Bruce Springsteen. Uh, song titles, and that's, I think, that's one of the things that gives this song such marvelous tension is that Bob's performance of it seems so deadly serious, and yet the lines are just riddled with Bruce Springsteen stuff, and you realize, okay, this is the Wilberries, and we'll get into the history of who who exactly wrote this song in a minute. But you realize that the Wilburys are kind of goofing on Bruce Springsteen a little bit. Now, in a it ends up being in a good natured way, but nevertheless, I mean, it's it's I love the tension of that. I mean, the song goes on. It says the undercover cop never liked the Monkey Man. Even back in childhood, he wanted to see him in the can. Jan got married at 14 to a racketeer named Bill. She made secret calls to the monkey man from a mansion on the hill. It was out on Thunder Road. tweeter at the wheel. They crashed into paradise. They could hear them tires squeal. The undercover cop pulled up and said, every one of you is a liar. If you don't surrender now, it's going to go down to the wire. And then we get the refrain again of the Wilburys singing in chorus. Uh, All the Wilburys are singing on this except for Roy Orbison. Strangely enough, he's not included here. Uh, And then the song goes on. He says, an ambulance rolled up, a state trooper close behind. Tweeter took his gun away and messed up his mind. The undercover cop was left tied up to a tree. Knew the souvenir stand by the old abandoned factory. Next to the undercover cop was hot in pursuit. He was taking the whole thing personal. He didn't care about the loot. Jan had told him many times, it was you to me who taught, in Jersey, anything's legal as long as you don't get caught, which is a line that I use all the time, having lived in New Jersey my whole life.
2: (laughs) Why well, you it all the time growing up in Arkansas. Have you never even been within like spit distance of New Jersey? So I understand
1: why you had. <laughs> it's an amazing line. I mean, it just—it at it, it first it sounds a little like gibberish, and then you're like, "Well, no, wait a minute. I understand what this is." So, what was it about this song that you guys wanted to talk about?
2: Well, I, I think I think it's all of the things that that you know you, you kind of you touched upon so far, and a little stuff that apparently we're going to touch upon is I just I just love the travel of Willberries. And I, this is, like I said earlier, this is my first exposure to, to Bob Dylan. I, and you talk about the Bruce Springsteen stuff. I didn't know when this came out in uh, 1989, 1990, when, you know, around there whenever it came out. I didn't know all these Bruce Springsteen uh, References. I, mm. I had heard "Born in the USA" like everyone else in America, you know. What I mean, and the world, you know. I, I, I and, and like everyone else at the time, I didn't know what it was about. It was like five when it came out or whatever, you know. So, so I got excused. But I wouldn't become a Bruce Springsteen fan until 1999 when I stole the book from Hastings, "Born to Run," the Bruce Springsteen uh, biography, and uh, and it, I, I stole it. But it was one of those books that they put like outside past the. Uh, past the damn things what catch you when you're stealing stuff, you know, the, <laughs> you know, the metal detector. not You're not trying to steal guns. You know what I mean.
3: Right, I
2: got you, I got you. The Yeah, the BBB. But like, and later I would date the lady who ran that, the book section of and I was like, hey, I stole that book. She's like, we, we wanted you to. That's why it was out there. We couldn't sell it, but it was an eye-opening book. And as I'm going through this book, I'm like, wait, wait, wait. Thunder Road? Wait, hmm. wait, wait. Mansion on the Hill? wait, wait, what is all this? What is, the River, Steve Kruger? and all of a sudden I realized I had been listening to a Bruce Springsteen song for <laughs> 10 years, and I had no idea. So That's this song, great. Yeah, it's just very special to me for that reason. I have that cassette, and, you know, it kind of all comes together. You know, uh, Bruce Springsteen was one of the last big pieces of the musical history that I wanted to experience that I filled in, and Creature and the Monkey Man is, is like the genesis of me filling that in. And now, I you know, an even bigger appreciation for this song.
3: Yeah, Bruce Springsteen is one I'm still feeling in myself, because much like with Bob Dylan, I had to teach... Most of what I know about Bruce Springsteen, I had to teach myself or, like, you know... Go out you should have sold a book. <laughs> I should have stolen a book. I only <laughs> really had heard, like, Born in the USA, you know, the ones you hear a lot, like, Dance in the so Dark. My favorite Bruce Springsteen song to this day. But I was just thoroughly a teenager, and had to be dragged to a Bruce Springsteen concert by my sister and brother-in-law because I happened to be visiting them when they were going. And they were like, no, you need to go and see this, that big, you know, like a whiny, like, angsty teenager. And just had my mind blown at what might be to this day, like, the best concert I've ever seen in <laughs> And I might not have, you know, I have no Bob Dylan concert story, unfortunately, but like Bruce Springsteen and the e Street Band was something I was very glad someone, probably the best thing someone ever dragged me to go see.
2: Well, don't feel bad. I don't really have a Bob Dylan concert <laughs> story either. <laughs> That's
3: fair. During your I, story, I thought you meant that you yelled at the Mississippi River Band, and then I realized you just meant no, the, no, the river. literal Mississippi <laughs> River. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
2: <laughs> I was. And it was in my mind. It was a psionic argument. I was yelling at the river.
1: Um, I have often I have often said that, this, that the one Bruce Springsteen concert I've been to is the best concert I've ever been to at non-Bob Dylan Division. So, yeah, Bruce, just, Bruce certainly does deliver.
3: This was in 1990, probably eight or nine. And he would have been maybe like, I don't know, 50 or on the time. And he was just nonstop for four hours. He made me tired as a teenager watching yes.
0: him. Yes, then, like, sweet. the
3: concert where you don't know the songs is not always, you know, a lot of fun if, you're, if you don't know the band really well or the songs really well. But it was just mind blowing. Like I just I felt like I got a, an education that night, as cliche as that sounds. Um, and the more that I've gotten to know Bruce Springsteen um, as a musician, not just as a musician, but as a music fan. I love one of my favorites, like watching someone meet their heroes or like get to collaborate with their heroes moments is watching Bruce Springsteen on stage with the Beatles at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame induction. And he just I've never seen someone look so happy to be in a band at that moment. And so I think <laughs> about this song, I think about Tree and the Monkey Man, how stoked was Bruce Springsteen to find out that Bob Dylan and Tom Petty, like, you know, weird out him basically. <laughs>
1: Yeah, there's – I mean people have interviewed uh, – Tom Petty of all the uh, Wilburys was kind of the one, the most loquacious about talking about what it was like writing these songs. And he would mentioned and in a 2013 interview with Rolling Stone, he said in relation to, to Springsteen, this song was not meant to mock him at all. It started with Bob saying, I want to write a song about a guy named Tweeter and it needs somebody else. So I said – the Monkey Man. And he says, perfect. Tweeter and the Monkey Man. And then he said, okay, I want to write a story and set it in New Jersey. And I was like, okay, New Jersey. And then he was like, yeah, we could use references to Bruce Springsteen titles. He says it was clearly meant as praise, which I think is obvious because, it, again, it's the song seems like when you know all the hidden references, it seems like a gag. But, again, the story is really quite compelling. I mean it is a really kind of Dylan esque song of all these characters flying around and you're trying to keep track of everything. Um it can, the song continues on. It says some place by Railway Prison they ran out of gas. The undercover cop had cornered him, said, Boy, you didn't think you didn't think this could last. Jan jumped out, of bed, said, jumped out of bed, said, there's someplace I got to go. She took the gun out of her drawer and said, it's best that you don't know. The undercover cop was found face down in the field. The monkey man was on the river bridge using tweeter as a shield. Jan said to the monkey man, I'm not fooled by Twitter's curl. I knew him long before he ever became a Jersey girl. And there's something in that line that I want to mention is that tweeter seems to change genders through this song. And it, it always keeps you kind of off balance a little about exactly who's Bob is, is singing about. But Bob has done lots of songs where characters seem to be named after male, you know, have male names that are female or vice versa. So he's been doing that a lot. But I but I love that you're never quite sure exactly who all of these people are and what their relation is to one another.
3: That's honestly maybe the most impressive thing about the song is how much it gives you the appearance that there is a cohesive story. Mm-hmm. When, because I was like, you know, I was like analyzing the lyrics, not just listening to them, but I was really, I was like reading them and really thinking about like what exactly is going on here. And the more I thought about them the more I realized like, wait, there's not really a story. There's all the trappings of stories. There are characters. There are scenes. There are whole vignettes of stories, but there's no actual story per se. It's almost like a whole fiction to song, but it doesn't get tied together. Right, and it it, it 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 was driving me crazy trying to piece it out. I mean, I asked Dean before we before we started recording, like, tell me the story of this song. You know, like, could you just give me a summary of the story of the song? And you can't really because there's not one. But it's impressive how long it took me to figure that out.
1: Right, the images are so evocative that it feels like you've been told this sort of amazing story, and it's so cinematic. That you feel like, well, this could make a great movie, and then you realize, well, but yeah, but I mean, it. I mean, again, who are all these people? And it's kind of hanging, like, all right, like what? Who's coming into who? Like, what are all these relationships? I mean, uh, the the song wraps up with again with Bob in another typical sort of Dylan thing, where he changes tenses because all of a sudden you have somebody else. Right. says He says at the end, he goes, now the town of Jersey City is quieting down again. I'm sitting in a gambling club called the Lion's Den. The TV set was blown up. Every bit of it was gone. Ever since the nightly news show that the Monkey Man was on, I guess I'll go to Florida and get myself some sun. There ain't no more opportunity here. Everything's been done. Sometimes I think of Tweeter. Sometimes I think of Jan. Sometimes I don't think about nothing but the Monkey Man. And I'm like, wait, who is this person at the end who's now telling me this story? Who is this person? I haven't been introduced to them at this point. I think it's the guy who was fronting them all the cocaine and hats
2: <laughs> they were selling at the beginning. But just think about how it begins. It's like they were hard up for cash. If they were hard up for cash, how could that be? They had been up all night selling cocaine and hats to the undercover right. company. They could have had a lot of money. But if this guy fronted them the stuff, then they had to give him the money. So even though they've been up all night selling drugs, they didn't have any money. So I know that may not be true, but in my head, like this is – this is honestly what I came up with as, like, a fourth grader, right? Like, I was like, oh, that's the guy who's, like, in charge of all. Like, he's a mobster guy. He's going to Florida. He's done with this life. That's, that's my story. Bob Dylan probably tell you something different, but that's how it works in my head. See,
3: this is so impressive. Like, there's no real story here, but there's so much of the story. You have egg it
1: Right, right. Uh, I love the mention of the lion's den. That is, to me, one of the great Dylan locations in a song a gambling club called the Lion's Den. I mean that is that that name is so awesome uh that I just went you know it's like oh god this is this is this is up there with uh the Gambling Den and the and the Lily Rosemary and the Jack of Hearts and those other songs which is just like it seems like such a cool place. You could just sort of picture it. Uh, it seems like the kind of place you would see Bob himself pictured. He was just playing all this smoke-filled rooms and the kind of like, uh, you know, a lot of prostitutes hanging around and stuff like that. And these shady-looking characters. I mean, it just – it's it, I, he really was clearly having a lot of fun, him and Patty. And I love the little story that I heard about them writing this because, of course, the 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 history of writing the Wilbury songs is that they all just pitched in together. And they were like, okay, we have Bob – for like nine days, before he goes on a tour. So, we're gonna write a song a day. We're gonna do it that way. And then we'll, and in eight or nine days, we'll have an album. And it says uh, later on, they were talking about, George Harrison talked about it. He says, The Tweeter and the Monkey Man was really written by Tom and Bob. He says, uh, Jeff and I were there too, but we were just sitting around in the kitchen. And for some reason Bob is talking about all this stuff that doesn't make much sense to me, you know, Americana kind of stuff. And we got this tape cassette <laughs> and put it on and then transcribed everything they were saying. I love the idea that Bob and Tom Petty are talking about Americana stuff and George Harris is just like, I don't know, I, I don't know, Jeff. What what are they talking about? I just I love that idea that Bob and Tom go off in a corner and just create this little thing and, and Jeff and George are like, I don't know, let's make tea or something. I don't let those guys yeah, just finish the- it. You know what's really funny, too, about The uh,
2: the Lion's Den is that I was reading, and, like, later on, there's, like, a Bruce Springsteen song called Lion's Den.
1: Oh, I didn't even know that. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah.
2: It's made after, I don't know what album it's on, but it's made, like, after this.
1: I can't remember. There's one, there's one other reference in the song
3: that, like, later on, Bruce Springsteen would write this song. Like, This is, like, you know... Uh, um, like when directors put like the movie posters of another movie, and then that director yes. put that movie poster <laughs> in their movie. Like this is you
2: know this is that I guess. But yeah, I, I agree with you about the lions too. Like I can just see that the scene you painted is great. Like the rattling of chips, somebody yep. going all in, somebody called. I, I, I picture like you know I, I'm sure you get some people who like uh, listen to your other stuff who listen to your. I picture like the DC gambling character Batlash, who is like cheating and a swindled some. Some dude out of his girl, and everything's get loud, and here's his Bob over the corner, strumming and a- humming.
1: <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, Rick Ricky Jay would be there for certain. That uh, I'm absolutely convinced of. Uh, the, this is one of the few Wilbury songs that was actually done in concert. Uh, Tom Petty covered it a bunch of times, uh, and then it was featured on a 2013 live album. And you can actually hear that on YouTube. And you know, Tom does a really good version of it. I and mean, of course, he's really conversant with the song, so he he does a, a nice, a nice uh, rollicking version of it. Bob has never sang it in concert. In fact, he's only ever sung one Wilbury song in concert, and that was Congratulations. I am kind of amazed that Bruce Springsteen has never covered this uh, <laughs> either.
3: Hey, I tried to find one, assuming it existed,
1: and that it was very sad to find out it did not. Yeah, that, that seems you know like me either in concert or just you know banging around the studio one day of like, hey, let's try this. That ought to be fun. But but apparently, apparently they never have. But again, it was all it's all in good fun. Bob and Bruce are are fast friends, and it's so it's just kind of nice that he's working all these. You know, it's like a big tribute to Bruce Springsteen, and I can't imagine you know being Bruce Springsteen and growing up and. Worshipping Bob Dylan and then having him write a song in your style. That has to be such a tremendous compliment. So I, I would love, to, you know, what an amazing thing would have been to have been around Bruce Springsteen when he first heard this song. I mean, what his reaction was to hear all these, you know, the Thunder Road and old Mansion of Hill and Stolen Car. That had to be just amazing. And you can, again, Bob's delivery is so serious. But yet, you know, he was sort of smiling through the whole thing because the 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 song is it, again, it has that, it seems serious, but it really isn't, and I love that. I just, I, I never tire of this song.
3: That's the thing, I mean, it, like, when you first hear it, it takes you a well while to figure out that they're, like, taking the piss a bit, even in a very good-natured way. Like, then you can start to hear, like, like a lot of other Wilberry songs, like, these are friends having fun making music together, even though the song yeah. doesn't necessarily sound like a fun song.
2: Yeah.
3: I, I think another thing that kind of happens here with this song
2: is much like David Bowie's major Tom character winds up in other people's songs and other songs. Even if Bruce Springsteen didn't create Tweeter and the Monkey Man, I feel like they are part of that Bruce Springsteen shared universe at this point, that they are <laughs> in the song State Trooper. They're in Mansion on the Hill. And this is, and just like, you know, I always talk about the fictional place like Bruce Springsteen's New Jersey, that kind of place that he's created with his songs, that visual that you get. People down on their luck, but still trying hard. People showing up in the refinery. Maybe they get a job today. Maybe they don't. Maybe they got to do something dirty so that their kid can eat. I feel like Twitter and the monkey man know every one of these people, you know, from from the guy born in the USA to the dude poking the dog in a uh, reason to believe that he thinks that's all. Yeah. I think I think they totally belong there. I think this is, and I don't know that we talk about Tweeter and the Monkey Man enough as far as that, because that's a very special thing in music. It happens a lot in like other we see it in movies now, we see it in comic books, you see it in literature even, but in, but in, in songs, in music, characters don't usually transcend that way. and I think that's one of the things that makes Tweeter and the Monkey Man very special as well.
1: Oh, I'm sure that Tweeter and the Monkey Man are familiar with the guys from the characters in Atlantic City. Uh, right. Exactly. They absolutely know those guys. There's no way they don't. I mean, just that kind of it's just, uh, just perfectly set up for to blend all that together. And again, that, that's what gives it that appeal. And and it is. It stands out. It's so strange because the rest of the, the Wilburys Volume One and Wilburys Volume Three, to a lesser extent, are just not so serious. Uh, and then this one sticks out, and of course on the production as well, uh, there you've got you've got horns on this one, uh, which you really don't have on the other Wilbury songs to the most part. This has a lot more uh, musical accompaniment, so it's it's much more of an operatic kind of thing than the than the rest of the Wilbury songs, and that's what it sticks out. kind of in a nice way. It's like, oh, okay, the Wilbury songs aren't just necessarily fluff they can be this other thing and here and we're going to kind of grit it up a little and then of course the the album ends with end of the line which is a very sweet kind of nostalgic thing but this has that kind of grit and sand to it which i really like and of course dylan's the perfect person to with his vocal for it uh like i said it's just it's a really sharp fun song and again i it's it's i mean i love all the Woodbury songs but this is just I always catch find myself singing along to it because it's just it's again you get caught up in the story, and again, as you point out, Emily, it doesn't make a whole lot of real sense when you examine it, but it it sounds it seems like it makes sense as you're listening.
3: Now do you think that the characters of Bon Jovi's New Jersey exist in the same universe, or are they sort of yeah, like they're the yeah
2: they're, they're, Bruce crazy, they're, they're, they're like, the people who they're the people who New Jersey like they kick their ass. <laughs>
3: And they kick their ass every time. Yeah,
2: <laughs> every
3: time. Yeah, 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 yeah. Take this copy from the doc.
2: <laughs> <laughs> it does stand out on the album, and I think in a weird way, you know, that album very, very critically acclaimed, and it, it, there was almost no chance it wouldn't have been with, you know, Jeff Lynne, George, you know, George Harrison, Roy Orbison, Tom Petty, Bob Dylan. There's almost no way it wasn't going to be great. But somehow, I think without this song, even though it's, you know, incredibly different from the rest of the album. Uh, without it, it doesn't tie together well. I think sometimes, like if you're making a dish and it's going to be very sweet, you need to put something sour. You need to put something a little hot. If you're going to have, you know, if you're going to have citrus. You need to kind of temper that as well. And I think this song kind of serves that purpose on that album. It tempers the rest of it to where it doesn't. It, even though most of the rest of it is quite saccharine, it doesn't get too far into that territory just because of how strong the serious song is. Yeah, you
3: always need something like that. You always need something to. Uh... Give it the acidity. Right, there you go. We've been watching a lot of Master Chef lately, in case you can't
1: tell. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they said that's what that's what makes it special, is that it stands out like that. And in it, like I said, in a nice way. And it's, again, it's it's full of great locations and full of interesting Dylan esque characters. And like you said, it, it does seem to blend in with the larger Springsteen universe, which. You know that's really fun, too. I mean again he he this these characters could blend over with a lot of other Dylan characters and Springsteen, springs and even Tom Petty story songs to a certain extent. They were all very good at writing story songs and you know with the Woolberries, there's been lots of supergroups in rock and roll over the years, but I don't think, I don't think it's a particularly controversial statement to say you're never going to have a bigger supergroup. Than the traveling Willburys because you've got a beetle in there. You can't beat that. Right. I mean, what what, what other group's gonna have a beetle in it for Pete's sakes?
3: I mean, even I mean we saw the we saw the All Star Band Ringo and his All Star Band last year and it was amazing. And you know, and every single guy on that stage might be a rock star in his own right, but it's still like the the legendary status of every member of the Willberries just kind of makes it so. Yeah. It was, Studio is never going to reach those heights
2: together. I, I mean, also because, like, if you look at the Wilburys as well, is, is the personnel involved, it's 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 almost like a chronological map of rock and roll history. You start with Rory Orbison, then mm. you have. Beatles and Bob Dylan and then Tom Petty's career really you know kicks off seventy-seven, seventy-eight, and it's very strong into the 80s so it's almost like a, just a map of rock and roll from and, the beginning to that point and we're never going to do that again I mean I don't mean to sound uh you know press but a lot of the people
3: who could have fulfilled those roles have, have passed on now. and Jeff Lynn I mean, is it being somebody in, very influential in on like the later 70s into the 80s yeah and he later produced the Beatles yeah
1: Mm-hmm. That's right. Yeah, he was the one who produced the, the Beatles reunion songs. Um, it was sort of funny that I've, of all the of the five of them, the one who seemed the most enamored of the Wilburys was George Harrison. He seemed to be the one that had – he was kind of the, the ringleader. Of course, the whole reason the album came about was because they needed a B-side for one of his singles. And he seemed just the most in love with being a Wilbury. At the same time, he was the one that put the kibosh on doing a tour because apparently um, – Warner Brothers Records, his label, uh, went to him and said, "Would you guys consider doing Wilburys tour?" And they apparently sort of talked it over briefly. And, and Tom Petty jokingly apparently said something like, "Guys, it's so much money." But uh, George Harrison <laughs> said that it ultimately vetoed it because he said, "I just can't picture myself doing a traveling Wilbury sound check." That was just like, just I just I can't bring myself because I guess if you take it on tour, then you've got to take it seriously. It's, then right. it becomes a business thing, and that I, I think they just realized that would ruin the spirit of it, and so they decided, no, let's just leave it alone. It'll just be a group that exists on on record somewhere.
3: I mean, expectations would have to have been crazy high for that. Tour. Oh man, yeah. Again, talking yeah. just the caliber. Like again, every single one of those guys is a legend, so he doesn't better be like the best concert. His mother was brings Brucey Bruce Springsteen East Band like out of the water. But it seems like George Harrison always had kind of a contentious relationship with touring, not just as a member of the Beatles, but as a solo act, too. Yeah. The Dark Horse Tour, and obviously, right. you know, a very bad experience for him. The for Bangladesh. The for Bangladesh, yeah. So yeah. That kind of surprised me to he was the one that was like... Well, yeah, and also, it's, it's, when you look back at the Beatles breaking up as well,
2: I don't know that George Harrison took it the hardest, but when you watch the videos of them signing the papers, He's the one who's just, like, so over everything already. And you mm-hmm. talk about having this seriously all of a sudden. Like, what if something happened to He and there was some acrimony? I don't think he wanted to have any kind of acrimony with people he had gotten that close to over business yeah. Uh, yeah. stuff again. I, I mean, I can't speak for George Harrison. I don't know, but based on what I know of his life and his, you know, feelings about things and his personality, I think that was part of it. Like you said, this was, this was was this was some of the best musicians in the world who just happened to really like each other. And we love each other, great friends like let's just make a record and let's just have some fun because we can because we also love music that much, and even though they released records and even though they made some money and these records won, you know won some awards and stuff, it never if you go on tour, then it's serious business. then all of a sudden yeah. it, you know have to start like t- thinking about well, who owns what, how will this work what's going to happen? I thought we can do that again
1: right we're I mean we're gonna have to start talking about the t shirt sales and you know, how much of the gate were cut. Yeah, you could just, and these guys were already super wealthy and it was like, we don't need to do this. So they just sort of left it alone. I mean, they did come back for another album, of course, but that was pretty much it. And the the Woolberries is sort of a thing in time. And so, you know, it was just this perfect little thing. And I've mentioned this on other episodes, but my favorite quote about the Woolberries is from Harrison, where he said, if the Woolberries did nothing else, it got Bob to start writing songs again. And if for nothing else, it was worth it. And so I just love that, too, that gesture of friendship of George Harrison to say, hey, it got my friend started up again. Because, you know, I, I mentioned this and i get also this on other episodes where, you know, Bob was coming into this record at a low ebb in his career. He had released a bunch of pretty – weak records all in a row and it was after the Woolbury's record that he sort of decided to sit down and sort of wrote he wrote the songs that would appear on the O oh Mercy album, which was one of his finest, after a long time of not putting out particularly Great records, and so the maybe hanging out with his buddies really inspired him to kind of like recommit. And if that was the case, then you know, thank you, George Harrison, and thank you, Traveling Wilburys, because uh, <laughs> it it set Bob on a different course. And that's uh, that's uh, we're all thankful for that.
3: If you can't get inspired by that group of guys, you're probably just out of luck.
1: Yeah, probably. Yeah, so
3: I mean, and, and they were just they had you
2: know they had other ideas too. Like I don't know if you're aware of this, but like they almost did a Beatles anthology thing with uh, Elvis for the Traveling Wilburys. I read about it. It's in like a TV guide article about the Beatles anthology that they were going to like use some Elvis thing, you know, and like he was going to be like Aaron Wilbury. And like they wound up not doing it. I can't recall exactly why. But like just even that idea, to, you know, because that, that's a very outside the box idea at that time. Maybe even that was just inspiring. Bob Dylan. It's like, hey, I can, I, I, we can do anything.
1: We, I can do anything I want. Again, yeah. yeah. Oh, that I never heard that. That's amazing. That would have been so cool. Jeez, yeah. I mean, and again, it's funny how ahead of its time it is. I mean, it's they, they're all using pseudonyms. I joked at the beginning of the show saying it's Lucky Wilbury. I mean, these are five huge guys, and at no point on this record anywhere do the names of their do these guys' names actually appear. Uh, it's totally, it's Nelson and Otis and Charlie T. Jr. and Lucky and Lefty. At no point does it say George Harrison. And you've even got the fake liner notes uh, by Michael Palin, I believe. And I mean, it's like, so they really, I mean, obviously they're in the video and you recognize who they are. But I mean, they kept the joke up. And, you know, God bless them. They had that kind of wild Woolberry spirit, as they like to say. So this is. and. Th- uh-huh. This is just such a fun song. It's such a wonderful, wonderful song. So, I mean, as again as everything on the this record uh, record is so. Uh, I think that is going to do it for Tweeter and the Monkey Man. Anyone who hasn't heard this, listening to this, come on, go get the Wilburys record. Get the Wilburys anthology box set you pick it up. It's, uh, it's really sounding – oh, the w- one last thing I, m- I will mention about it. Apparently there is one alternative take of this song that's sort of half-finished. They sort of went through it and they didn't really come together and then they sat down and banged out the actual version. So there is no – other take of this to hear that basically the one you hear on the record is is the only one that they ever really finished so uh so guys dean emily thank you so much for for doing this and thank you for coming to pod dylan live i really appreciate it
2: thank you for having us always a pleasure never a chore.
1: <laughs> so where can people find you guys on the internet
2: well right now you know we just started a big uh podcast series over at the un- uh, the unspoken decade.com which is uh, uh, my 90s website. Emily's got a lot of great articles there, too. It's the only 90s comics website out there, by the way. So, like, if you're looking for somebody to celebrate the gimmick era, that's where you're (laughs) going. And we've got a lot of great stuff going on. Uh, Single-issue podcasts are coming up. The first one's going to be about Prototype. And I'm going to be writing an article very soon about Archer and Armstrong, the first couple issues.
1: Very cool. Very cool. All right. Well, it said We will have that link in the show notes. And again, thanks, everybody, for listening. Of course, if you want to find back episodes of the show, go to the website, fireandwaterpodcast.com, and you can subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts and on Stitcher. And we're always talking Dylan, of course, or Lucky Wilbury in this case, over on Twitter, which is at pod underscore Dylan. So, again, Emily, Dean, thanks so much for coming on. I love talking to you guys. And uh, thanks, everybody, for listening, and we will see you later. Bye.
0: the jersey line so they hopped into a stolen car took highway 99